Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Job 38:39-39:30 Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of a of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey? when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill, and do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she has yet no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley, he paused in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattled the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. I have two questions to begin this morning, and these questions are for all of you. 
I, my particular hope is that you kids will enjoy these questions, and so I'm thinking about you with these questions, and I'm eager to see what sort of facial expressions you give me. Um, but let's all, these questions are for all of us, not just the kids, okay? First, there are two questions. The first question is this. Don't necessarily answer it out loud so I can hear, but, but answer it maybe loud enough for the person sitting next to you. What is your favorite animal in the whole wide world? What is your favorite animal in the whole world? All right, you got it? Thinking about your favorite animal, Santos? I'm curious what your favorite animal is, brother. Got your favorite animal? Are you thinking about it now? What would you do if you saw your favorite animal in your backyard? <laughs> okay, you'd be happy, yeah? All right. It is my assumption that for most of us, our favorite animal is not one that is commonly seen in our neighborhood. I, I would be willing to bet a whole dollar that nobody said red squirrel. Uh, I really like red squirrels. Um, it's my assumption that your favorite animal is not one that's commonly seen in your day-to-day -day commute. The reason for this is that you and I live in a really exciting time in human history. Right? We can bellyache about all the things that are hard about living in the 21st century, but you and I live truly in a really exciting time in human history. All of us, every single one of us, knows about creatures and critters that simply don't live around here. All of us know about critters that don't live around here, right? A hundred years ago, think. For some of us, a hundred years ago doesn't seem like that long ago. Don't, no, no snide remarks, I know, I know, I know. But a hundred years ago, the internet, internet did not exist it didn't spread the incredible photos and videos that are taken all over the world. Televisions, kids, this is hard. Listen, listen. There once upon a time was a time when there were no televisions. They didn't exist. And even if televisions did exist, we didn't have the cameras that we have today that are capable of time-lapse photography or the macro lenses that capture the tiny, tiny things that we can't see well with our eyes, or the telephoto lenses that capture things that are too far away for our own eyes to see. There were no drones to explore caves, and GoPros couldn't be mounted inside of a beehive. These things didn't exist a hundred years ago. It really is a remarkable gift that you and I get to enjoy to see the wild and exotic creatures of the world when we visit a zoo or an aquarium, right? A lot of us get kind of bored. Yeah, zoo. Probably got tigers and bears. Lions, oh my, right? Did that wrong, but anyway. We think about all of the exotic Caribbean fish that we can see by accident, right? And we think nothing of it. You know anything about the history of zoos or the history of aquariums? This is not an ancient phenomenon, right? What we have accessible to us with a quick little trip downtown is wild. It's incredible. It's special. For you and I to be able to watch a flower bloom or a penguin give birth or a grizzly bear catch fish 
or a tiger take a nap or a blue whale simply swim. To witness these realities with our own eyes is incredibly rich and incredibly rare in human history. How many of you, if I showed you a video of a grizzly bear snatching trout out of the air, or salmon, would say, yeah, I saw that one? Are you kidding me? We've seen so much beauty in the world. I don't live anywhere near a grizzly bear right now. Tigers, giraffes are not close by, but I've seen it all. Wow, what a truly rare and remarkable and a rich thing that we have in society to be able to see these wild and exotic things that most human beings couldn't even imagine. While the glories of the wild and exotic become more and more accessible, the deeply unfortunate reality is that most of our tour guides are wicked liars. Nearly every DNR-sponsored tour and PBS program has been hosted by Darwinian naturalists who begin their study and explanation of the world and its animals by denying the existence of a creator. It's simply assumed. We're not going to come out and tell you that we are anti-supernaturalists. We're going to come out and tell you that all of this stuff came into being and there's no great mind. There is no great God behind it all. Even though Darwin's theories have taken a terrible beating, we live in a world that requires us to put on atheist classes before entering earth science classes, biology electives, or reptile rooms. SeaWorld is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And yet, it is also the home of one of the greatest deceptions in human history. God has made the world. He has filled it according to his good pleasure. God and God alone sustains all life. And we are wise if we heed his commands to exercise dominion according to his good design. It boggles my mind that we can all gather and and pay good money to watch an orca jump out of the water, or a sea lion balance a ball on its nose, and yet at the same time believe that there is no great wise one behind all of this. What a wicked lie. This is me trying to control my anger here. What a wicked lie lie that seemingly every window that we look through to see the great wonders of the world has been tainted and tinted by atheists. Those who say there is no God. You can come see my otters. You can come see my penguins. But let me tell you about how no one made all this. And no one holds it all together. What an unfortunate reality we live in to be able to see the exotic, but yet somehow have God shut behind a closed door in the midst of all of these glorious things. I don't think it's a coincidence that as atheistic naturalism has become more and more inescapable, I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time humanity struggles with finding meaning. 
No one made everything you see. Hmm. Why do I find it hard to get out of bed? I don't think it's a coincidence that as zoos and nature programs become propaganda machines for the religion of Darwin, I don't think it is any mystery why society struggles so mightily with depression and suicide. The good news is that into this terrible tangle of lies, into this mess of beauty and deception, God's response to Job lights up the darkness. What we have here in Job 38 and 39 is this glorious lightning bolt that comes shooting into his life and into our lives and just gives such a display of glory and truth and reality that it dispels all of the darkness and all that goes with it. As God speaks into Job's grief, he also speaks into our daily struggle with grief. The main idea I want to draw out of our text that spans chapter, the end of 38 and all of 39, the main idea I want to press in on you from this text, pulling all of these different images and statements about different animals, I want to press it all on to you this morning, and I want you to be able to walk out of this room understanding this. The glory of God demolishes grief. The glory of God demolishes grief. I want to make this point plain, and this is maybe a little bit different than my normal way of doing it. I kind of have two points. I want to set up this text with, by looking at our context, right? I'm not just preaching one chapter of the Bible. I'm tre- teaching a particular chapter within a book, within a canon. And so I want you to see how this chapter fits within the book of Job briefly, and then the second point will have basically seven sub-points, which will take one paragraph at a time, and each of those paragraphs, I hope to show you the glory of God and how it's revealed in that paragraph, and hopefully setting you on a path of joyful worship instead of frustrated disappointment. What I believe at this moment is a group of people who love Jesus are sitting in this room, but they've been lied to and deceived by naturalists who don't believe in anything supernatural. And I believe that you're struggling with grief and I believe that you're struggling with depression and frustration because of a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them being the many lies that's told to you about the world you live in. And my hope is, is by looking at the specific windows that God gives us into the world that he's created, you will see the glory of God and you will rejoice. It is my prayer that you will be happier upon leaving this room by seeing the glory of God as it's revealed here. Let's begin with looking at our context, okay? If you haven't been here, some of you, I always think about what a visitor's thinking when we just jump into chapter 38 and 39, what in the world is going on? Um, But let's set this text within its context so that we properly understand it. Our passage this morning is the second half of God's first response to Job's cries for answer. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 38, we read that God answered Job from the whirlwind, right? Job had been struggling and praying and crying out to God. We did chapter 38, and we talked about how God spoke about the many inanimate objects that points to him, and here is the second half of that first response to Job's cries for answers. Remember, you know this well, but I want to keep it in front of you. Job was the most righteous man on the earth. 
And God clearly permits Satan to test Job's faith through an excruciating set of trials. Most righteous man enduring excruciating temptation and difficulty from Satan. Satan's argument was that God was not worthy of worship in and of himself, but that Job, like all worshipers, only praises God for his comforting blessings. Satan says to God, you are not worthy of worship. You are not good in and of yourself. People will only praise you if you make them rich. And that's what he said about Job. After every worldly pleasure was violently stripped from him, Job's friends made everything worse. They became annoying and merciless. They beat on him in tiresome repetition with accusations of hypocrisy and hidden sin. Job's faith began by singing these words, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that faith that began singing started to stumble. Job never cursed God as Satan had boasted that he would make him do, but he did grow frustrated. Job did weaken under these difficulties, and he said more than he should have. God graciously answers Job's cries beginning in chapter 38, and he will continue to speak to Job into chapter 42. Though God's words feel heavy as he reveals his glory, Job humbly expresses that he is helped by God's words, and he says as much in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Some of us might be tempted to look at this and feel like God is being really cruel and rude towards Job, but we see in those two particular places at the beginning of chapter 40 and in 42 that Job is thankful and relieved and praises God for speaking to him as he does. In chapter 42, verse 7, God speaks words of commendation, not condemnation, but commendation. Think award ceremony. God speaks words of commendation to Job and words of judgment on his friends. As we work through our passage this morning, it's important that we remember that these words are spoken to an imperfect man that God is pleased with and not a man that he is angry with. Okay? So these words are addressed to Job. And who's Job? Job is a righteous man who stumbled. God loves him and cares for him and is not angry with him. So we need to read these words in the proper tone. These words are heavy. I will not make any attempt to convince you otherwise. Don't let that weight deceive you. These are gloriously helpful words, even if their primary help comes like an ice pack on a swollen ego, right? When you twist your ankle and you put an ice pack on it, it doesn't necessarily feel good, does it? But that ice pack is precisely what you need for the swelling that's beginning to happen. And God's words, though they are heavy and perhaps uh, not initially comforting, these words are perfect as they bring down the swelling that's gone on in Job's ego through his suffering. Chapter 38 reveals God's great goodness as he governs over the inanimate features of the weather and the workings of our solar system. And in verse 39, the channel changes from talking about the weather and talking about uh, sun, moon, and stars 
it changes to the animal planet with a particular emphasis on wild and untamed beasts. Job's resume, uh, if you'll remember from the first couple chapters, included extensive care for many domesticated animals like sheep, cows, and camels. But God isn't speaking to Job this morning about domesticated animals. He's particularly speaking to him about animals Job never had in any barns, never had under the care of any shepherds. God wants Job to see how even the wildest creatures depend upon God. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Job, God's response here at the end is often received with confusion and not much comfort. I've had so many good conversations with those of you who've read Job and have struggled to get a handle on it. It's easy to get to God's words and feel like you were expecting something different. Okay? These words don't feel comforting initially, but I think we are supposed to be relieved by these words. They do confront our pride and force us to admit that we are not God, but God clearly reveals his greatness and his goodness. If you can get over the shock that of the fact that God comes to Job and says, you're not God, I think you'll see what God is revealing of himself is the glory of his greatness and the glory of his goodness, and this is a great comfort to us. God is great in that he governs every wild and untamed beast that he has created, and he is good in that he provides every need of every little critter that he has made. Kids, you're going to be distracted and think about a bunch of things. If you want to fill your page, your note-taking this morning with critters, any critter or creature that you can think of, and hear this point, God takes care of every little one of them. The wildest beast that you can think of does precisely what the Lord commands it to do. The untamable creatures of the world obey God. That's the basic premise and point of what we're doing here, and I hope that you will understand more clearly and be comforted by. You and I, along with Job, may fear that the world is an unjust mash of chaos. Anybody feel like that this week? But God is revealing that this confusing world all bows to him and is ordered according to his wisdom. Sometimes life feels like a four-way stop in a third-world country. It's chaos. And sometimes it feels like life is like a runaway train. But what Job 38 and 39 says so clearly is that God is governing over everything. There is no rebellious, mutinous molecule. There is no untamed beast in the world that does not bow and do precisely what the Lord says. That's the context. Now I want to move into uh, the second part and just looking at each of these paragraphs, particularly highlighting the grief-busting glory of God. Okay, so we're going to move point to point to point, paragraph to paragraph fairly quickly considering um, compared to our normal pace. But all I'm trying to do from paragraph to paragraph is to show you how the glory of God destroys, demolishes, decimates our grief. Looking at chapter 38, verses 39 through 41, I'd encourage you to look along with me to see that 
I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm telling you what the Bible says. We see in those verses, Yahweh calling Job to consider the lions, to consider the ravens. And God asks Job from the whirlwind, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Job, listen, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job knew what it was like to provide. He had a wife that he provided for. At the beginning of the story of the book of Job, Job had ten children that he cared for, that he provided for. He knew what it was like to be responsible for the appetites of flocks and herds, and even the extensive staff that he had hired to take care of his, his responsibilities. By wisdom, Job met the needs of those under his care, and it was his wisdom that was so bothered by the way that God was treating him. Job knew what it was like to take care of the good staff and to release the bad staff. Job knew what it was like to make sure all of his sheep were being taken care of and all of his flocks and herds had what they needed. And here's Job suffering and struggling. And his wisdom bumps into God's wisdom and he thinks, this is a mess. What is going on here? I need answers. In this first paragraph, God asks Job if he is responsible for feeding the earth's lions. Sometimes I think the real problem with reading this section of the scriptures is we read it too quickly. Just, just sit for a minute. We're not going to do it right now, but sit for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and think, how would you respond to God if he said, can you hunt the prey for the lion? How would you respond to that? God asks Job if the ravens call to him when they're in need. The answer to these questions is obvious. We think, Drew, I don't need 10 or 15 minutes. I got a one-word answer for that. But all that Job can do is admit that these duties are beyond him. Obviously, Lord, I don't feed all the lions. I don't do grocery runs for the ravens. We might be tempted to read God's words here as an angry comparison about who has the harder job. You guys ever read this section to think God saying, yeah, well, I'm way busier than you. And I want to get that idea out of your head. God is not angry with Job, and God is not somehow offended that he thinks Job doesn't think God's job is hard. I think it's better to see something more noble in what God says. I think it's right to see God's tone as not angry and bitter and getting into some sort of comparison. There is com comparison here, it's clear. But instead of angry comparison, God is lovingly expanding Job's perception of his maker's superior wisdom and care. He's taking Job by the sides of his brain and he's saying, you need, you need to have bigger thoughts about me. Job is concerned that God has dropped the ball in his case and that chaos is getting the last word with him. But as God points to the satisfied lions and the relieved ravens, he helps Job see that God has not fumbled the ball in his life. Job 
needs God to explain. Why does it feel like you've fumbled? Why you've made a mess of my life? And God begins by saying, I feed all the lions. I've not fumbled with you, buddy. Your situation, your, what you're going through is not too hard for me. I've not fumbled the ball with you. Though life seems wild and untamed, God is meticulously sovereign over every element of life on the earth. Okay. God is making clear to Job and to you and me that there is no wild and untamed world for God. It all belongs to him and does according to his bidding. Job's fear of chaos is swallowed up by God's words here. Job's great fear is that the world's a chaotic mess and nothing makes sense, nothing is um, reasonable. But as God takes him to look at the ravens and to, think, and to look at the lions, he's making clear, Job, chaos does not rule. It doesn't rule in your life, it doesn't rule in the raven's life, it doesn't rule in the lion's life. I'm in charge and I am ruling and reigning over all these things. Instead of shame and further grief, these realities led the psalmist to sing praises. How should we respond when God says, I feed the lions and I feed the ravens? What's the proper response to that? Hmm, good, good note. Write that down. What should be our proper response? Our proper response is well shown by the psalmist in Psalm 147. Listen to these words, particularly verses 7 through 11. He says this, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. I don't want to be a preacher that gets up here and says, shame on you for having many thoughts about God. I want to get up here like the psalmist and say, brothers and sisters, what a great God we serve. What a great reason to sing and shout and, and, and rejoice. Our God rules and reigns. When the ravens cry, God brings them what they need. Some of you young ones, you're learning some bird calls, right? And you're able to distinguish which animal, which bird it is that made that noise in the trees somewhere. But listen... Those songs are either songs of praise to their maker or songs of please feed me, creator. You don't need to know the language of the cardinal to know that he is crying out to his maker for food or that he is singing praises to his creator when he lifts his voice. Jesus would, would speak similar words to his weary and worried disciples in Luke 12. We read this, and, he, and Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, about what you will wear, what you will put on. Why? For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, 
When God says to Job in chapter 38, consider the ravens, Jesus says to his disciples, and I say to you, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And then listen to this. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You're supposed to see the birds that are making the weird nest in your front porch and you try to figure out what to do with those eggs that got there that you wish weren't there. You're supposed to see those birds as flourishing under the care of God. As bringing about the next generation of swallows. And you're supposed to look at them and say, that dear bird is not worried about the interest rates on home loans. He's not concerned about his Roth IRA. Why? Because he knows God's going to take care of him. And Jesus speaks to his disciples, and I desperately want you to hear me this morning, disciples. You are of much more value to God than that bird. Much more value. Saints, when it seems like life is a chaotic mess and no one is behind the wheel, remember the lions and the ravens. Get your kids' animal books out. Remember the lions, remember the ravens. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, relax and let your anxieties drift away in the glorious knowledge that God is wise and his care for the world is far, far greater than we can fathom. Birds have nothing stored up for the months ahead. Absolutely nothing. And some of you are freaking out about your bank account right now and thinking, oh, God has forgotten me. Consider the ravens. If the Lord's going to feed every single black bird on the planet, you think he knows how to take care of you? Though it seems that God forgets about you at times, he is too wise. Hear me. He's too wise. And he's too good for that to actually happen. He's too wise. He's too good. Somebody smile at me and let me know you hear my voice. Is my mic working, Brandy? Is it coming through? Brothers and sisters, I often feel like God forgets about me and that chaos is ruling the day and someone's in charge of the planet, but they're on a break. I feel that way and I bet you do too. But what the scriptures say so clearly that God's too wise for that to happen. God is too good for that to actually happen. You are feeling something that isn't true. God is too wise and too good for chaos to rule. Look with me in chapter 39, verses 1 through 4. Here in these verses, God points to the wild and untamed mountain goats. And by pointing to them, he asks questions about their birthing needs. Okay? 
little Amanda Ostrom happening right here. Job no doubt tended to the expanded needs of his pregnant animals. He knew what it was like to help cows and sheep give birth to the young. And then God asks about these goats that live and breed far, far, far from any human help. The point here is that Job's fear is being demolished by a fresh awareness of God's tender care. Where some may see blind instinct, and this is that terrible lie of anti-supernaturalists, Darwinian naturalists, who say, yep, goats have been conditioned over the millennia to just give birth, and all of these things are just blind instinct. No, God is at work. Some animals need the special help of man, but the world is full, full, full of wild creatures who are sustained by the invisible kindness of God. The reclusive mountain goat may appear self-sufficient, but God helps Job see that they are recipients of divine help. Faithlessness looks to the mountain goat and says, somehow evolution just made them to be able to take care of themselves. Right? But Job is hearing from God, listen, no, the reason goats can do what they do is because God is the midwife. God is the one giving birth God is giving help to these creatures. Again, the psalmist was moved to sing by these realities in Psalm 104. It wasn't grief but praise that caused him to sing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In Psalm 104, verses 16 through 18, he sings, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir tree. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Church, one of the reasons grief and joylessness rides shotgun in your life is because you've been listening to the naturalistic DNR guides who refuse to believe in a supernatural creator instead of the Holy Spirit-inspired psalmist. The psalmist says that tree is lush because God makes it lush. The DNR person says we've had good, steady rainfall, which is true. But they don't take it all the way back to the place because God takes care of the trees. The naturalist will say, goats are just uniquely adapted to their environment. Yeah, by the hand of God. And they're sustained and kept by God because God gives them their place. It's not impersonal evolutionary conditioning that leads the spawning trout or the shad back to the waters that they were born in. It is the all-wise and all-aware God. It's not blind, random conditioning. It's God. Some of you are aching for God to give you a sign. And if you listen to the scriptures, you can't get away from his signs. Why do the salmon do what they do? Because God. Why does the American shad do what it does? Gary, tell me, brother. Why does that fish lift there? Because God sends the American shad back up the stream to give birth in the same lake that it, it was born in. 
That is bizarre and not random. That is the hand of God. Brothers and sisters, notice the glory of God. It's everywhere. Grieving brother, grieving sister, doubting brother, doubting sister. Watch some mountain goat videos with the sound muted and praise songs playing. Please do it for the sake of your own joy. Turn on the animal planet and mute that terrible God-hater and listen to praise songs. What a glorious God we serve who says, look at what I've done. See my glory and be comforted. Let the word of God dwell in you richly instead of the demonic sermons of so many nature commentators. Listen, I don't want to say anything bad about every DNR person. I don't want to say, don't hear me. I'm trying to be specifically careful here. There is a large pattern that says how most things go, and there are outliers, and I praise God for the brothers and sisters who work in all sorts of nature care. And I pray that God would raise up some of you children, and he would call you to work for the DNR and honor God in it. But hear me. Some of the worst lies that have ever been breathed in the world are to say that God isn't responsible for every creature in the world. In verses 5 through 8, God points to the wild donkey that runs away from human attention and is still sustained in the most hostile environments. This creature stubbornly refuses help from people, and yet it thrives where few creatures do. God wants the knowledge of the wild donkey to comfort Job, and I want it to comfort you. This creature refuses the wild, the wise care, excuse me, this creature refuses the wise care of the farmer, but still has the wise care of God. This creature may seem foolish to refuse domestic life, but God says in verse 6, I have given the arid plain for his, plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. This creature may appear homeless and lost, but God's great wisdom is its provision. Psalm 104, again, so helpfully points us to this same animal, this same wild donkey, as a reason to bless the Lord and to praise him. We read in verses 10 through 13, You make springs gush forth in the valleys, O God. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Saints, as we saw the last time I preached in the book of Job, Every raindrop goes where God intends, and every spring and river flows according to God's command. These waterways nourish every beast of the field and declare to us that God is wise and chaos is not in charge. Open up Google Maps this afternoon, zoom out, get that satellite picture, and see every stream is where it is because God put it there. Chaos is not in charge. Church, there is so much joy. There's so much peace. There's so much relief in seeing God's wise care of the world. 
Your painful circumstances are not the chaotic accidents you fear them to be. I'm trying to bless you, saints, with with comfort and peace and joy. The chaotic accidents, as you call them, that have happened to you, they're not chaotic accidents. Chaotic messes didn't beat God one day and cause that thing to happen to you. God is governing all things on a level of wisdom beyond our understanding. You ever watch a professional do their job? Every now and again, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Why'd they do it that way? And then if you wait, you realize, oh, (laughs) I didn't understand a professional. Saints, so often the same is the, the case with us. God is wiser beyond our understanding. In verses 9 through 12, God highlights the undomesticated wild ox. Boys, I want to give you an assignment here for this week, and it'll be fun. So hold on for a second. I'm going to give you a word to spell and some research to do. Uh, In verses 9 through 12, God highlights an undomesticated wild ox. If you're looking at the King James Version, I don't know if we have any KJVers in the room, but if you're looking at verse 9 in the KJV, you will see the word unicorn. I mention this because it's not uncommon for scoundrels on TikTok or wherever it might be to point out this unfortunate translation decision in the King James Version and then twist it to say that the Bible is a book of fantasy and myth. See Job 39 and other places, I think eight other places, the Bible uses the word unicorn. So therefore the Bible is a a book of myths. I'd be happy to chat more with you about the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate that led to this unfortunate word choice, but I think we can all agree that translating from one language into another gets bumpy at times, and the idea of a one-horned beast can be a number of things that doesn't look anything like a unicorn, right? One of the ways you can translate single-horned beast is unicorn. There are also a whole bunch of other animals you could be talking about. But I bring that up to say, listen, when those punks come at you on TikTok, come and talk to somebody who actually reads the Bible, and I'm happy to help you sort those things out. The Bible is not full of myths. It's not full of unicorns. Okay? Instead, boys, ready? Here's a little research. You might have to make a library trip. Instead, I commend a little research on what an animal that's now extinct, the aurochs. A-U-R-O-C-H-S. Aurochs. Our modern and domesticated oxen descended from this enormous and wild beast, but this ox was huge and it was wild. God points to this massive and uncontrollable mammal that will not serve Job. God is clearly saying that this beast serves him and sleeps wherever God tells it to sleep. No beast, and consequently no force of evil, lives independent of God's direction. Hey, we're researching wild oxen later, 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 okay? All right. But what God is saying, this massive beast that's going to be head with me, and these huge horns that you're not going to be able to control this thing, God says that thing eats when I tell it to eat. 
And you're supposed to have a sense and a feeling about the God that you worship and serve that says, okay, if you've got that thing under control, maybe I can relax a little bit. In verses 13 through 18, God frames up the ostrich for our attention. This bizarre bird's behavior is listed for Job's comfort and ours. God intends to comfort me with the image of an ostrich? This bird is bizarre, right? Does it have wings? Does it have feathers? Yes, yes, yes. Does it lay eggs? Yes. Does it fly? Mm, No. Is it a bird? Well, let's call it a bizarre bird. This bird's bizarre behavior is listed for Job's comfort and ours. Winged and feathered yet flightless, this bird strangely lays its eggs in the open ground. She seems cruel and uncaring, but she is the way that she is because God made her that way. This isn't some unfortunate evolutionary hiccup that she lays her eggs the way she does. She does it the way God intends. It seems cruel and uncaring, but it is the way that God intends. Though God most frequently makes birds to fly and hide their eggs in out-of-reach nests, God has chosen to do something different and perhaps odd with this particular bird. Instead of flight, God has given this creature immense speed and the ability to care for her her young, not by sitting on a nest high in the trees, but by leading every predator away from her eggs with her awesome speed. She may seem like the epitome of foolishness, but even here, God's peculiar wisdom is on display. Brothers and sisters, you would be really helped to know that God's wisdom is often peculiar. Look at the ostrich. Look at the ostrich. Does God have some funny ideas in his head? Absolutely. Does God do things the same way every time? No. Does God make birds with feathers and wings that cannot fly? Yes, he does. God does things his own way, and his own wisdom is just not the same as ours. In verses 19 through 25, God asks about the mighty war horse. While the ostrich's unusual behavior seems cruel, this horse's behavior is no less unusual. Okay, We kind of look at the ostrich and we laugh, and then we look at the horse and we sort of are in awe. But I think those two animals are paired next to each other to say they're both strange. One of them is hard to get along with, and one of them we're really excited about. This great animal, the war horse, gets excited about war and conflict. Isn't that clearly what's being said? Swords start rattling, weapons get out, and the horse gets excited. That's bizarre. This animal has been given a competitive spirit that, quote, laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword, according to verse 22. This is strange. God wants Job to see in his suffering that God is free to do things that don't make sense to us. Let me say that again. We all need to have a category for this in our minds. God is free to do things that don't make sense to us. Just as God is free to make an ostrich the way it is and a war horse the way it is, God is free to work in our lives the way that he desires to. 
Sometimes they seem cruel like the ostrich, and sometimes they seem, seem incredibly helpful like the warhorse. Though God doesn't make every bird fly or every animal wild, God is good and does good. Friend, your life may not look like others. Hear me. Anybody in here feel like a flightless bird right now? Anybody in here feel like they're just wired wrong and different? And God isn't navigating and creating a life for you that's like everybody else's? Your life may not look like others. You may be called to live a life that seems peculiar and strange, but hear me, God is free and still good when he does things his own way. Your life may not be going the way you thought it would or the way God usually does things, but friend, God is still wise and good. God's wisdom often does things that our wisdom can't grasp. Look at the ostrich. God doesn't make one bird 10,000 different times. God makes our lives very different. There are similarities, but some of us are going to be the weird bird on the block. And God is totally free to display his glory that way. And you will find great joy in knowing that God is wise and good, even in your life that doesn't seem to be like everybody else's. In the last paragraph, in verses 26 through 30, God points out the high-flying hawk. He asks in verse 27, Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? Job's silent answer to this question is the same no as it has been for all of these questions. You and I look at that question and we sort of like, how am I supposed to answer that, God? No, the eagle doesn't do what I command. The, ans- the awesome activities and capabilities of birds of prey owe their existence to the generous activity of God. Why do talons exist? Because God said so. Why are there birds that fly so high we can barely see them and then suddenly they're in the water holding a fish? Why, does that, why is that? Because God says so. Flight is one of those realities that can be explained on a page, but it is still practically magical. Some of you remember, I'm still kind of laughing about it several weeks ago, where I got kind of wound up about the water cycle. Right? You can talk about precipitation, you can talk about evaporation, and you can fill in all the particular blanks on the exam. But stop and think about it. Water does... This is bizarre. I feel like flight is much the same way. We can explain it on paper, but it's still practically magical. Even before we leave this building today, we might hear the roar of an airplane coming in for a landing. We might think about all the mechanics of things such as lift, weight, drag, and thrust. We might coldly wonder, hmm, I wonder what city that plane came from. But don't you sometimes see those winged towers and just can't help but drop your jaw? Does anybody else just stand in the yard in the driveway between the house and the car and look at that thing fly over and think, how does that happen? And somebody could come along and say, well, there's, there's thrust and there's drag. Like, shut up. I understand. I get it. But that is a building in the air directly above my house. 
absolutely bonkers. And those little birds in my front yard, if I get too close to them, they just hop up in the air and hang out where I can't reach them. And we think, well, that's just normal. That's what birds do. Stop. Those birds were walking on the ground, picking up little seeds, and then they just jumped up in the air and stayed there. Flight is absolutely awesome. And it is what it is because God made it. And it continues to be that way because God sustains it. Brothers and sisters, consider the ravens. Look at the 747. I don't know what the right numbers are now, Andrew, but look at these, <laughs> look at these massive people carriers. We get frustrated because the giant flying building is 15 minutes late. Seriously, <laughs> there's just so much joy in seeing the God who is behind it all. And he made some crazy people wise enough to learn about all these mechanics so that you and I can buy a ticket and we can fuss about in-flight snacks. But you're in a building in the air. Flying. Oh, my word. What an awesome God. What a good God that doesn't decide, well, the, flight, the, the mechanics of flight just are going to take a day off. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the rules of flight just changed on a Wednesday? If God wasn't faithful to, to sustain these mechanics, chaos like we can't even imagine. God is in control. Because airports exist. Do you need proof that God exists? Find a bird anywhere. God is good and God is wise. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, does this feel deep? How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Job's grief had narrowed his vision and shrunken his view of God. The tunnel vision of sadness has desperately needed this help that God has provided in these various questions. God helps Job by humbling him with a clearer understanding of God's greatness and his goodness that cares for everything he has created. Job isn't hugged and say, it's all right, buddy, it's almost over. Job is blessed with something better than a careful, kind, tender word. It says, Job, let me show you my glory. Let me show you the glory of the one who creates and sustains the whole world. Church, you and I, we are often blinded by our anxieties and fears. No, I'm just worried about my plane being the one that crashes. Our pain and confusion darkens our ability to see and savor God in all his godness. The lies of naturalists who hide the heart and hands of God in the beautiful and complex world has deceived and depressed us. Church, hear God's voice from the book of Job and glory in his sovereign rule over every awesome and bizarre element of creation. Take your fears and frustrations to God in prayer and be reminded that every creeping thing on the whole planet looks to him for direction and provision. 
Our God is great. And our God is good. Beloved, Colossians 1 says this, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and listen, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Church, Christ created all things and all things exist for him. All things are held together by his own hand. All things were created as a display of his beauty and majesty. And not only this, but Jesus Christ, being the creator, the sustainer of all things, would glorify himself further by taking on true humanity and to choose a sacrificial death and to display his awesome goodness through a triumphant resurrection to become the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead, to help us believe in the resurrection life to follow. Jesus himself, by his creating and sustaining power, would save an alienated and evil people like you and me. And not only that, he would reconcile all things to himself in heaven and earth and make peace by his cross. Beloved, we have a glorious God who has created an incredible world. And the scriptures tell us plainly, we are born at enmity with him. We are born enemies of God. Imagine how terrible it would be to be the enemy of the God who feeds the lions. But by the gracious work of Christ, God has changed us from being aliens and enemies to being friends being brothers and sisters, to being children and part of his body. Brother, sister, far too often our view of God is far too small. But if we see God in his majestic care of the world's wildest and mightiest beasts, how could we truly doubt his care or ability to meet our needs? What are you freaking out about right now? When you pray, you are speaking to the one who feeds all the ravens. When you pray, you are speaking to the one who knows exactly how many hairs are on your head. God is not small. God is great. God is not cruel and chaotic. God is good. He may be beyond what you understand, but brother, sister, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses or barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
Jesus Christ did not go to the cross for ravens. He didn't do it for sandpipers. He didn't do it for hermit crabs. He didn't do it for millipedes. He didn't do it for hamsters. He didn't even do it for golden retrievers. But Jesus Christ went to the cross for sinners like you and me. And at the cross, he made a way where all who would come to him in faith would be redeemed and in right relationship with this maker of heaven and earth. 